Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us writing for Godot and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's happy hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, went to the ABC and audition. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. And <laughs> <laughs> as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to episode 191 of The Stages Podcast. My guest in this episode is the artistic director of the Outhouse Theatre Company, Jeremy Waters. As a theatre maker, Jez has nearly 20 years of performing, producing and teaching experience. He has appeared in national and international stage and screen productions with credits that include Janet King, Jade of Death, The Combination 2 and on stage in Jerusalem by Jez Butterworth, Four Minutes, Twelve Seconds by James Fritz, Nick and Wright's A Man with Five Children, and Annie Baker's The Aliens. As the AD of Outhouse, he has guided the presentation of an impressive repertoire of productions that have provided actors and audiences vivid, visceral, and intellectual experiences. Plays have included John, The Flick, and The Aliens by Annie Baker, Trevor by Nick Jones, and The Rolling Stone by Chris Urch. Next week, Outhouse presents the ferocious comedy Ulster American by David Ireland. A long-planned conversation finally came to fruition with Jeremy joining stages to record this insightful episode in which we cover a broad range of subjects that include independent theatre, the craft of acting and fatherhood. Here's my overdue catch-up with Jeremy Waters. Has that happened? No, Have you no, not knocked out a two-hour two chat with... Uh, Sam Mendes and gone, you're joking. Oh, f- funnily enough, Sam Mendes hasn't um, returned my call. He's one of the three. Well, oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yes, only three out of, out of 200. Well, there's a good go. strike rate. Would you like me to call him? Do <laughs> uh, you know him? Sam? Yeah. No. Oh, Mendo? Well, don't tease. I don't even know the Australian Mendo. Don't tease. Who's the Australian Mendo? Ben Mendelsohn. All oh, right. Okay. Mm. There you go. Mm. Great career. Resurgence in the last oh, ten years, probably for Ben Mendelsohn. Bloody hell, yeah! Animal Kingdom. Mm. You do that. You do that film that sort of hits the zeitgeist or the big time, and uh, well, Jackie Weaver. Is yeah, saying yeah. Jeffrey Rush. Jeffrey Rush with Shine. Yeah. They've got a lot to thank those <laughs> the writer, the guys who. Well, both they all they were writer director teams. I think on um, on all those films. I think weren't right. they? Um, like I hope they get down on their knees at night and go, thank you, David Michaud, mm. or you know. Well, and, and actors who'd had a, a very reputable um, careers in Australia yeah. on the stage yeah. and in, in some film. Uh, but it certainly is that old adage that uh, about performance that it's the right place, right time, yeah. right opportunity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then all of a sudden, um, you're global. Bada bing, bada boom. And I mean, there's, and there's, levels of, there's levels of success, isn't there? You know, there's success here and then there's, you know... Oscar-winning success or Oscar-nominated success, I suppose. A whole new ball game, which doesn't necessarily mean 
uh, future work in film. Isn't it interesting mm. to look at Oscar winners mm, and who yeah. has gone on to further glory and mm. who we never hear from? Well, again? you know what? I, I think I saw something um, along the lines of, um, uh, particularly for the women. Um, they, you know, an article that looked at the subsequent careers of a whole bunch of best actress winners, and it was exactly as you just said, Pete. Like a bit, a real freaking struggle um, for good roles and good films, and you know, you got your Merrills, obviously, you got your outliers like her, the geniuses, but then plenty of them, you know, hit this pinnacle. Halle Berry, you know, mm-hmm. they hit this pinnacle of their career, and then uh, the roles sort of dry up, which. Must suck. Must suck. Mm. And then, you know, there's uh, Roberto Benigni, Benigni. from mm. Life is Beautiful. I love you. Thank you. I love you. I want to make love to all of you. Oh, my God. <laughs> exactly. But obviously, you know, Italian actor and, and huge in his own country. But, but an American career never really took no, off. No, that's true. And um, the French guy. Who in The uh, Artist. The Artist. Yeah, yeah. 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 Whereas Marion Cotillard and... You know, Jean Reno, and well, he's not an Oscar guy, but does a lot of action films. <laughs> and who's the actor who I think he won about three supporting actor awards, Oscars, for yeah. the Quentin Tarantino films? Oh, Christoph Waltz. Yes. yes. Yeah. He's, yes. Well, he moved to LA. Right. Yeah, because I've, 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 I love his voice. Yes. I love listening to his voice. I literally listen to his interviews just for the dulcet vocal tones. I know that sounds a little creepy, but. I'm a bit of a voice fetishist. <laughs> well, I love listening to your voice, Jeremy. Get out of here, Peter. Yeah, no, <laughs> uh, because that's a, a, a terrific um, backstop sideline for, for your career too. You've been you do lots of voice. Work, I have been you? doing. Yeah, I've been lucky enough to to um to, to for the last few years to to do a fair bit of voice voiceover work. It can be. It really becomes your bread and butter after a while. It's the best job in the world. I love voiceover work. Um, you know, sometimes you're in there for five minutes and you're like, this does not feel like work. <laughs> no. And other times, you know, you're working pretty hard in there. But, um, yeah, depending on the job, it can be, um, it, it can just be a whole ball of fun. So a, a lot of commercial product or are you doing oh, a bit of everything. animation? Or I haven't, yeah, I don't do a lot of character voices. Right. I'm very one-dimensional, you know, very superficial. Um, I just do that one thing. Um, so, yeah, lots of sort of, TVCs and radio commercials. Um, I'm not really the selly guy. I find it hard to to really put the smile in that retail voice. <laughs> That's a, quite a frequent direction I get. Yeah. A bit more smile, Jeremy. I, yeah. I'm crying on the inside, so mm-hmm. don't don't ask me to smile. <laughs> I find all those Pixar films fascinating. Oh my god! You yeah. know, the voices are obviously cast because of yeah. because of it. A particular quality, and often they're famous people, but you recognise mm. their mm. their vocal tics straight away. Yes, yes. Whether it be what, Don Rickles as Mr. Potato, uh, Don Rickles, yeah, that um, the old stand-up. Yeah. yeah, I've only just started getting into Pixar with the four-year-old. Um, so yeah, Toy Story. I, I, I had never seen Toy Story until about two what? months ago. What? I know, I know. And now there's two and three. Oh uh, well, there's like five and six probably. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's right. I've got a whole, you know, I've got a, a whole canon of animation ahead of me, which I'm really looking forward to because the one I love is Ratatouille. I just right. love that story, and I just, you know, I just <laughs> a freaking rat. Like he's a genius Michelin yeah. star chef. Yeah, yeah. What genius came up with that? <laughs> you know, and the little guy against all the odds, etc. Like the thematically, 
And, yeah. and that whole creation of the Paris skyline and, and the city oh. of Paris, what you can do with animation yes, is yes. extraordinary. I'd, yeah, I'd love to get into it. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, so far it's certainly an area that hasn't, you know, I've done a little bit of it, but, yeah. Some, but some people are so good at it. You know, some of these voice actors who do a lot of character work, you know, their vocal cords are like rubber bands. They're like, and they can just twist them into whatever they like, you know. Uh, has your voice ever failed you in any performances, any play? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, old, old scratchy voice box, Jeremy. Um, not really. Look, I, I had some voice problems, uh, some real afflictions in my early 20s. I had a big papilloma, like a vocal wart that I had two operations on. Right. So I used to sound even more, you know, Tom Waitsy uh, at the age of 21. And I just thought that's how I sounded. And there was nothing I could do about it. But then they stuck the old camera up the nose and went, you've got a massive blockage on benign, <laughs> thankfully, yeah. on your vocal cord. So they cut it out. Did it um, affect, affect your breathing in any way? Yeah. Well, I don't think I could get sound mm. out enough. So when I had that affliction that papilloma yeah i used to lose the voice really badly um and i remember doing shows back in the day where you know i'd have to go on vocal rest for for days um because yeah if i didn't it was it was gone but ever since then um it's kind of hung in there <laughs> it's within within varying degrees of rasp uh, I was talking to Linda Nichols Gidley today. Actually, she's the the dialect coach on our new show. <laughs> We're talking about yes, the 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 pristine, beautifully trained voices and uh, and mine. <laughs> but those pristine, beautifully trained voices, uh, you know, a technique gets them to to hit that back wall. Oh, it's extraordinary. But there's a, a tremendous um, attractiveness about your voice as well. It oh. does it does indicate character. I hope so. Thanks, Pete Eyes. Um, yeah, character. Yeah, well, it just depends on the character. Yeah, 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 Some, uh, yeah, some, uh, some, some rat, ratty kind of dude. Yeah, look, it's you've got to work with what you got, don't you? That's that's the that's the lovely thing about acting. You know, we we have our wear our own instrument. I suppose we don't use a paintbrush. We don't use a piece of clay. We don't use marble. We don't. Um, uh, we have to use ourselves, and uh, and you got to accept, yep. you know, what you've been given, and you try and make the most of that, and utilize that in the best way possible. Right. I suppose, yeah. Right. What about the body? How's that holding up? No, oh, mate, forty-four years old and creaky 44. as hell. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, maybe God. I shouldn't have said that. No, you can what's, say. That, hang on, what's my resume age? No, I think it's forty-four. Right, 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 right. <laughs> you know, thirty-two. I was um, doing a, a show with John Wood. Once, oh, and, yes. and he was playing the the uh, sergeant at, at um, John Wood playing a sergeant in Blue Healers. Blue, oh right, that show, yeah, 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 that, Mount that, Thomas, that Mount tiny Thomas. little show, yeah, yeah. And he had the shits because um, <laughs> in the the post that day it was his birthday or whatever, and mm. they they post his age, <laughs> which was older than retirement age for what a sergeant should. Be. Oh right, yeah, he's like the bubble's been popped. Bubble's oh been no, popped. the illusion. And then he was fired the next day. No, he wasn't. No, he wasn't. He this was ageism it. will not stop. <laughs> no, I think he was probably amused more than had. Yeah, sure. I, and I'm pretty I sure he had reached a level by then where he could probably be ninety. And still pull that off, and yeah, yeah, he'd won a gold logie. That's right, he's a gold logie. Award Look at winner. Elf in Home and Away. Oh, he's ageless, old mate. Yes, ageless. an icon. Mm. That's right, iconic, iconic. Mm. So, Jez, what, in your opinion, makes for a good story? Oh, that's a big question. Um, 
Uh, are we talking on stage? Yeah, I think I think on are stage. Are we going to focus? It is a you theatrical know, narrative. It is a theatrical narrative. For me personally, um, I think um, I love stories that tell us something about the world we live in today. I think I'm the older I get, ironically, the more attracted I am to contemporary playwriting. I used to be a bit of a classical fiend um, back in the day. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I love plays that sort of engage wholeheartedly with the sort of challenges and complexities of, of living in, in today's world. I think heart is important. Um, I, I don't love a bloodless play. I, I love seeing characters on stage that you don't normally get to see on stage. I think certain playwrights do that really, really beautifully. Um, I love language too. I'm obviously the plays that I get attracted to producing without house uh, text driven plays. So words and their and their arrangement on a page are really, really important. Um, that description is fa- uh, fantastic because it explains to me a lot about your obsession, infatuation with Annie Baker. Am I being too Both of those. No, no, no. Our no. Lodestar. Outhouse's Lodestar is because Annie I Baker, just, yeah. She, I just, she busted open my mind like no other playwright ever has. Well, yeah. I was just reading today, you know, mm. reading up on Annie Baker, and the website The Daily Beast um, stated about her work, that, that Baker's skill is to make us work hard as an audience mm. to make our own sense of her plays. Mm. The best, most enriching way to view any theatrical performance Baker's works are not for those who want easy A leads to B plots and spoon-fed meanings. Baker, as all great playwrights do, is holding a mirror up to us all, which is exactly what you described in, in a good story. I think so. I, I, you know, I didn't realise I was channelling Annie Baker then, but I, I'm, I'm, happy. <laughs> I'm happy to take that credit. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's probably the reason why Annie Baker is the playwright I've most produced. I, I don't think I've ever discovered a playwright where the playwright du jour yes i'm not i don't speak french oh playwright du jour yes yes playwright of the day um the aliens the Mm. flick Mm -hmm. uh, john john Mm. um i'd do them all if i could she's written a new one so i'd love to get my hands on that but it hasn't premiered yet so they're not letting us read it but uh, well, and um uh, have you looked at the vermont stories uh yeah yeah yeah, her vermont uh, vermont trilogy well the aliens i think is part of the vermont Trilogy right. and there's body awareness. I think yes, that was I, the first play. That was the first play. I just, I just think she's the most extraordinary playwright. I, I don't, I don't know any other playwright that weaves these quiet little spells that she does and burrows deep, deep, deep down into the sort of caverns of your heart without you realizing how she's doing or, or it's even happening. You, the lights come up and. You, at the end of one of her plays and you're changed in quite significant ways or at least this is what I've found and mm. plenty of people she provokes a lot of people too because plenty of people want to walk the hell out of her plays and mm. slam the door and never come back to one of her plays but well, I, think I don't I find that, that at all I had that conversation with you I think when, when I saw John mm. magnificent production and, and I just yeah I, I found it very tough <laughs> to engage stretch. with a stretch yeah. a stretch yes. however at the same time um it was like watching a painting. Yeah, I just, love that description. Just mm. unfold before your eyes, mm. and you could read all sorts of things mm. into it. 
Um, but at the same time, it sort of distanced itself from me. But mm. I certainly appreciate that it was good. I think something like John as well is her taking her theatrical ambition and her instincts and really going the whole hog with it. I think with the flick and the aliens, they're a bit more accessible if you want to use that word. But I think with John, she went, you know what? I'm not going to compromise at all with this. I'm going to write a play about an elderly lady running an B&B in, um, you know, in Gettysburg. And we're going to have, um, um, we're going to have big chats about metaphysical stuff and, um, and strange sort of shamanistic type religions and not a lot's going to happen. Not a lot does happen in most any Baker plays, but I just, I, there's something about her weaving that spell. And I love that what she, what I find that she does is that she makes us care so deeply about her characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and so many of her characters are people that you wouldn't look twice at mm-hmm. on the street. You know, they're the guys tearing your tickets at the cinema or the, B&B hostel um, sort of owner or the um, or, or the, the couple of stoners, you know, sitting out the back of a cafe sipping the psilocybin tea and talking about Bukowski. You know, the guys that, you know, are not exactly in rarefied social worlds, but she makes you realise that there's glory and beauty and life and dreams and all this huge stuff going on within what seems like the small framework of their lives. She paints on a huge canvas, even though her plays are just set in a... Quite intimate. Yes, they're set... Yeah, they're setting... They're usually one-setting plays. They're set in an old movie cinema or the back of a cafe or, like John, a, a, a B&B. And great roles for actors. Yeah. I, I was delighted to see that John off-Broadway uh, had uh, featured Georgia Engel and Lois Smith. Yeah, she wrote it for Georgia Engel. Oh, yeah. brilliant, brilliant, mm. brilliant. Mm. Um, and then here locally, you mm. had fantastic performances given mm. by Belinda Giblin yeah. and Maggie Blinker. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's. I think that's important for that outhouse does that plays with that sort of casting as well. And I, I'm not sure how conscious it is. I think you know what attracts you to a play and and the makeup of a play in terms of the characters is fairly unconscious at times. But I do like, and I am quite proud that we put on place with such a wide range of ages, of backgrounds, of um, ethnicities, etc., etc. You know, I think, I think uh, it's a very, very broad range of characters in the, in the sort of outhouse theatrical universe. I first met you, uh, we did a play of uh, Richard Bean's called Harvest. Mm. Really um, inventive... Uh, subject matter. Yeah. Uh, Yorkshire pig farmers. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, but that family over a period yes. of 100 years. 100 years, yes. Bit yeah. of a challenge, yeah. And I think you were the only character yeah. who went from scene one to the last scene. <laughs> it stuck around. At the age of... Yeah, that's right. How old were you? I think it was 102. 102. Yeah. I didn't even have any makeup pieces. It was terrible. Oh, wow. I had no you prop star. No time. Yeah. But you did it with your voice <laughs> yes. and your physicality. <laughs> That's just how just beaten down I felt by then. But um, he, he wasn't um, sensitive to his actor's needs or, or, no. or ability. I mean, because you also played the whole 100 years in a wheelchair. Well, actually, perhaps... Uh, 90 of those years. Yes, yes, yeah. He had two legs in the first scene. Mm. Yeah, when he was 18. Then he popped off to World War One, and then um, lost both his um, both his gams in um, in the war and then spent the rest of the play 
in a, in a bloody wheelchair with my feet tucked underneath me. And I don't do yoga, so that blood circulation was horrific. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I can imagine. With the, with, the, with the empty trouser legs hanging over the front to make it look like, um, yeah. But great writing again, mm. Richard Bean. Mm. I mean, he's a, he's a terrific uh, contemporary English player, right? Yes. Um, but that, that's a story told on an epic scale. Yeah, ambition's good, isn't it? Yeah, mm. good. Yeah. And, and, you know, for the other actors in it, it was a great opportunity to play various characters at various ages. Mm. Um, extraordinary. One of the great things about theatre, though, isn't it? You know, when you get, when you get taken into a whole other worlds and, and you can, you know, play your dress-ups and have a ball, why not? But also what I love about performing and, and acting too, every new play you do, if you're a good actor and responsible, you will mm. invest in that, you will research, you will learn about mm. that world and mm. that period of time. Mm. So, you know. so true, it's an education. You, get, you, get, you have to give yourself... Well, out of harvest, I, mm. I, I learned so much more about World War One and, mm. and the horses that we used. Yes, and, that's and right. The yeah. life of pig farmers. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it, there, there are so many amazing opportunities. I love the flick, you know, because we got to we got to delve into the world of old cinema and 35 millimeter film and the difference between celluloid and digital and and the romance of old movies and old Hollywood and all that sort of thing. And you know, it's 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 a treat to be able to dive headfirst into that stuff. Well, the romance of old cinema too. I mean, mm. I get so I would rather stay at home and watch a movie mm. on the TV. Mm. Now. Going to the cinema is such an empty experience. Mm. You've got one, you know, pimply faced seventeen <laughs> year old tearing tickets at the front, and then you go, you don't see another staff member, right? Except maybe someone who's you're in the vortex, up, yeah, spilt popcorn. Well, yeah, and you know, you're sitting next to someone who's brought a three course meal in, yes. Which you can smell yes. and you can hear them eating. Yes. And you're like, I don't know if. I mean, sushi's fine in a restaurant, but in a cinema? Oh, yeah. Come on, man. And dim sims are great when you're eating them, but not when <laughs> somebody else is. Don't need, don't, don't need a dim sim whiff oh. when you're trying to concentrate on a flick. No. Um, or even live theatre. I went to a, that production of Chicago recently, and I'm sitting there thinking, who farted? That's disgusting. <laughs> and I look at and, and, and the person in front was eating a hot oh. takeaway meal. <laughs> What's the world coming to? We're just going to sound like a couple of cantankerous old bastards going, back in my day, you couldn't eat in the theatre. Well, it's true. It's yeah, true. Yeah, it's very true. I don't mind being a commercial. While they're slurping means... on these big three-litre tubs of, you know, yep. whatever, yep. you know. You got a chock top in our day, and that was it. <laughs> and that was it, yeah. yeah. Maybe a chup chup if you felt feisty. Now, Jez, if I, I gave you a million dollars, I'm not going to give you a million dollars. Oh, my God. Hypotheticals. How would you spend that on the arts? Well, I'd start paying myself a really good salary yeah. as artistic director of Outhouse City Company. Yeah. Um, let me think. Ooh. Oh, you know, I'd produce a, a, as, as, as many plays as I possibly could. I would rope in all the indie theatre companies that um, I really like and who do really good work, and I'd chuck a good 50 grand at them. Um, I would buy a theatre, I think. I'd buy a theatre. I'd put on all those plays that I wanted to put on and let everyone else come and put all the plays they want to put on I wouldn't charge them any rent we'd have a big warehouse so we wouldn't have to get rid of all our stuff at the end of every show and you could just store every set and every costume and every prop you ever owned in aforementioned huge warehouse we'd have a marketing team everyone would get paid and we'd all 
live like kings doing theatre. Um, and I'd also make a couple of films. Right. That would be ideal. Yeah, I don't know if a million, but I don't know if that it'd stretch to a million bucks. But um, yeah, you've got me thinking, yeah, certainly. That's wonderful. Um, because putting on a show isn't just about learning some lines. It can be about learning some lines and getting in front of an audience. Mm-hmm. But there are so many resources that you rely upon to sell your show, to, to mm. build the show, to create the world of the show. And um, ideally, that space where you can build it, you can rehearse it. Oh, yeah. Would be fantastic. Oh, it'd be a one-stop shop. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and you know, venues in Sydney—it's really tricky. It's it's one of the the, the the toughest parts about producing theatre in Sydney is is the lack of really viable venues. Um, um, so yeah, oh, imagine being able to to pay yourself salary <laughs> to run a, a working theatre, and you know, you can build your audience base so that everyone can just come to that one theatre. And you're not all stretched out across the four corners of the city. That'd be fab. So Outhouse Theatre Company, mm. you're producing independent theatre. Mm. What are the challenges of producing independent theatre, especially in this time of COVID? Yeah. Well, there's the micro challenges and then there's the big challenges. The big challenges are obvious, you know, resources, finances. It's really hard, you know, when you, you know, smell of an oily rag, you don't have a ton of money to pay people to you know, increase your set budgets to um, do all the things you'd really, you'd really love to do. To, to be able to pay people an award wage would be lovely and then you could all rehearse 35 hours a week. You'd have a full-time rehearsal schedule rather than bits and pieces sort of all over the place. Um, so, uh, you know, that's obviously the big stuff. And then just, I don't know, on, on, there are just daily, daily challenges, usually revolving around um, just trying to scrounge whatever resources you can, trying to work around actors' work schedules so that they can go off on their side hustle, make their dollars, and then come and come and rehearse the plays. And that makes you feel like you don't have, you feel like you're under pressure all the time. You don't quite have enough time. You always need another week, um, or think you need another week. It usually ends up turns out fine um and uh, and building your audience is is not an easy thing you know the sydney theater landscape is a competitive old beast i think and there's there's a lot of people out there bless them mm-hmm. making theater and and trying to get a foothold in that in that sydney theater landscape and and trying to get eyeballs and on 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 your show um because that's the only the only way to really survive is to is to build your audience and make sure you sell your tickets and and uh and get people to to, to come to your show and that's a challenge depending on the show you're doing depending on who's in the show where the show is um, how much other theatre is going on at the time mm. I think with COVID um, one great thing that we're seeing at the moment is that Sydney audiences are really stepping up and supporting theatre uh, we I think there was a worry in the Sydney theatre community and probably communities you know all over the world that People are getting used to staying at home and going, I don't need to go out. I can just, you know, and now theatre is streamed now, so you don't even need to watch live theatre. You can just watch it on your, on your, uh, your smart TV or your laptop. But the shows that, are, that have been opening post-COVID are doing very well and there seems to be a really healthy um, presence of, um, at all those shows and, and Sydney audiences seem to be really enthusiastically 
getting behind live theatre, which is so fabulous. Mm. Um, performance is so reliant on putting bums on seats. And, yeah. and marketing really comes to the fore there in communicating that something's on. But with independent theatre, because of budget restraints, etc., you often are only doing a two-week season or three-week season, mm. some companies. So mm. it's over before it begins or before any... Oh, I wish I'd known it was on. Mm. Um, and I wish there could be... You know, it's difficult to fight with the main stage productions, I suppose, who have those mm. uh, marketing budgets, etc. But... I think I told you earlier, the most exciting experiences I've had in the theatre over the last couple of years mm. have been at independent theatre productions. Yeah. There's a there's a beautiful rawness or authenticity about what we're seeing on stages. Mm. And I think, well, I think because everyone there is, it's love projects, It's are doing mm. it pretty purely for love, you know, and I'm, I don't want to sound like a hopeless romantic, but I think in this case, it's kind of true. No one is ever... For the money, no one's there because it's just a job to pass the time. You are genuinely there because you're invested in the play you're doing and the work you're doing and the collaboration and the production you're trying to achieve. And I think that comes across. I yeah. think that kind of passion and really great actors who are attracted to working in the independent sector yeah. because they are given the opportunity to play roles mm. that they probably wouldn't at the main stage production mm. because that role, that type of role, always goes to that particular actor. A bit of a name or something yeah, like that. Yeah, 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 I think that's really true. And I think that's a wonderful space that the indie theatre can really inhabit is all these wonderful actors out there who don't get that many opportunities. And let's face it, like, the Sydney theatre scene is not a big scene. You know, it's not a... We don't have a huge industry here. We've got, what, five mm. main stage theatres? Maybe that pay and award wage and everything else technically is indie mm. um so yeah there's there's so many brilliant actors designers and creatives who need an outlet for their skills and need to really step into the space of telling their stories and indie theater allows them to do that yeah Outhouse does, I think, about two productions a year. Yeah, two. We did three in 2019. That must keep you pretty busy all year. Yeah, I'm not doing three again. Oh, my God. Because you're a one-man band, are you, with the the Essentially, yeah, I have been for a long time. Mm. Yeah, Craig Baldwin is associate, uh, artistic associate, and he's back from the States now. So um, I'm just... I see his name popping up. Yeah, Craig. Yeah, he's directed directed a lot for Outhouse, obviously. Um, And he and I did the first ever outhouse show together in New York where we met because I lived in New York for about five years and Craig was there for about 20 he went through Juilliard and he uh he's had a, 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 a big old life over there but he's sort of basing himself back here now and he's picking up some of that slack which I'm intensely appreciative of and very thankful for so yeah I'm I'm you know my anxiety is just at an eight or a nine rather than a ten or eleven so that's good that's healthy bless that man so what were you doing in America oh you know a bit of this bit of that chasing chasing I chased a lady over there um it wasn't a career thing at all. Right. I, I didn't oh. have any... No. Were you studying over there? No, Pete. No, no, I met a girl. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I was 26 um, without a hell of a lot of drive or focus or, you know, maybe even ambition. I don't know. <laughs> I, I met a girl who lived in New York and and uh, I said, well, I can come to New York and we can, you know, see how this goes. And and uh, and I did. And, uh, and that didn't continue uh, it did for a few years but I ended up staying in New York for five years and the longer I stayed 
the more um, I threw myself into the theatre scene over there and started Outhouse, obviously, and started making my own work. Because you feel like, you know how it is over there, This it's just an environment where so much is happening and so many creative people applying their trade. You feel like, oh, shit, I better sink or swim here. <laughs> so... You know, I decided swimming was probably the best option there. Yeah, absolutely. Competition is great for uh, yeah developing skills. Yeah, and just and it it, did, it didn't even necessarily feel like competition. I don't think I'd ever been in an environment or a city um, where the arts was so valued and the arts was such a part of life. Mm. You know, it was it was really a part of the you know played a big part in you know, helping the blood course through the veins of the city. You you couldn't walk through some of those theatre districts or without, um, you know, getting excited. And it was kind of all around you. So it sort of inspired me, I think, without me knowing it at the time. I think it gave me a real kick up the arse to actually... It's, to actually acknowledge to myself that a life in the arts and a life creating creative work is really valid and actually to be aspired to and I think that's what living over there might have had you been acting in Australia yeah yeah yeah, for a few years so that was always a career aspiration I think well not until my early 20s I was a bit of a late starter right so it was a bit of a hobby just a social not really a hobby I I was just a bit lost I think Pete I just didn't realize that it was the thing you could do I did a lot in school um but I did a lot at school I did a lot of sport and and then um, I did an arts degree at Sydney Uni and just because I didn't really know what the hell I wanted to do with my life. Were you part but, of SUDS or anything? Yeah, like? and yep. well, then I joined SUDS right. and that's, that's where the penny dropped a little bit. And I went, oh, this is, uh, this is kind of fabulous. And these people are really, are really fantastic. And, uh, and then my entire uni life just revolved around SUDS. All, you know, I, I, I failed most subjects and didn't really turn up to lectures or tutorials or anything like that. We basically just hung out in the cellar, Manning Bar, Manning Bar, cellar, cellar, Manning Bar. Um, and most of our waking hours at the uni um, revolved around putting on shows. Mm. And so when I came out of there, I had a pretty strong feeling that, yeah, this is something I want to do. I'm going to, I'm going to pursue this. Right. So you started Outhouse in New York was yep. it with, with Craig Baldwin? I started it with a, uh, an actor mate called Nick Stevenson. Austra- Australian? He's an Australian, right. yep. We, we, we just got to a point that I think most people who start indie theatre companies do. Uh, they just, you know let's make our own work and and let's see if we can um have a ball doing that and then craig directed that show um what was that what show that was the boys by gordon graham australian play (laughs) australian play well that was what we thought we thought well we'll bring australian plays and australian theater to new york audiences that was the sort of mission at the time and that was 15 years ago that was a it was a long time ago what what was the audience who attracted were they a lot of expats or a lot of expats we we had our hooks pretty deep in the australian community over there and it was a bit different because back then this was sort of oh five the new york experience wasn't what it is now now i feel like new york's become like well before COVID, obviously but the new london and a lot of young aussies are sort of going to new york instead of london whereas when we were there 
I went there in 03. It, it, Australian was still a fairly exotic flavour um, to an extent. Um, now they're probably sort of choking on us and going, ah, you know, get out of here. <laughs> we're, we're full. We've gorged on Australians. <laughs> um, but at the time, we were kind of, yeah, we were, we were kind of uh, a bit a real novelty. And Australian film actors and uh, film creators were making real waves over there. So I think New York, the New York theatre community, were quite curious about, well, what's Australian theatre look like? And of course, they're a really passionate bunch, the New York theatre community, so they don't necessarily have to know the company or know the play to come and see it. So we found that all sorts of people bought tickets to our shows just to see what these young, stupid Australians were doing. So did you continue producing Australian Fair? Or? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. we did three plays. We did Mark Kilmurray's Murthy C. Murthy. Mur- it's hard to say Murthy, with, with my lisp. Murthy. <laughs> it's like 8 p.m. Pete, stop feeding me this gin. Jeez, <laughs> man. It's tea. It's tea, of course it's it is. Tea. It's tea. We're, we're for fair film here. Um, and, um, yeah, we did uh, Mercy Thieves uh, by Mark Kilmurray and Ride by Jane Bodie. Uh, and then I went to LA for a couple of years, which was um, probably a really terrible decision looking back on it. But, um, you know, no regrets. And then I came You've back here. You've got to be in it to win it. Yeah. Well, I wasn't in it and I didn't win it. So. Hollywood must get pissed off a lot of the the American actors with the amount of Australians so. and English actors <laughs> coming over playing Americans. Yeah. In, um, you think I can't do that? You think yeah. I can't play American? What yeah. The, yeah, like we probably would as well, yeah, you yeah. know. If uh, Americans um, or English were coming here playing that's all exactly the Australian That's exactly right. Role. Step aside, pal. What, what is it about Australian actors, do you think, which makes them such a, a valuable or attractive commodity? I know when Hollywood? I was over there, there seemed to be this prevailing attitude amongst, um, you know, directors and casting agents over there, particularly with the men. I can't really speak for the women, but the men were men, you know. Like, you know, there were, you know, Sam Worthington had gone over there, guys like him and, and uh, Joel Edgerton, I suppose, and, you know, and, and I, I certainly got that sense that um, they thought that Australian men were virile and had all that going for them. Um, so it's no wonder I didn't get any work. <laughs> I didn't get, I just, I just didn't get boxed into that particular, um, you know, who would have thought? Um, but yeah, it was... It was quite strange because I, I remember thinking even over there, thinking, well, I've met a, a lot of American tough guys. There's, a, there's, a, there's American butch dudes. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> but but they, they, uh, they love the sort of rawness and the, the realness of the Australians, I suppose. Russell Crowe, obviously, yeah. you know, that Huge. kind of, you know, um, intensity that some of these guys were bringing to their work over there, I think is what they were attracted to with... with with the blokes mm. I, I think it was it's probably about maybe 10 years old now I think uh, a similar company producing Australian work the Australian Theatre Company started up in Los Angeles yes yes and that was that was well they did, uh, Tommy Murphy's holding yeah, the man yeah. and Ruben Guthrie yes I think. they yeah. did and, and, and it made complete sense because there's so many over there and certainly in Los Angeles there's a huge Australian creative community yeah. um uh, of expats so it made great sense to start showcasing particularly those actors um in 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 that community over there yeah so why'd you come back to australia oh mate i was done i was done with enough? The, done with the great satan yeah yeah that's <laughs> my as my dad calls america no look um i i i, I 
well, I wasn't sure I'd come back for good, but I, I sort of came back at that crossroads you have after six or seven years sometimes when you've, you've been overseas. And I had a relationship breakup, so... Yeah, I, I, I think I was emotionally a bit raw, and I think it had been a grind. It had been a bit of a grind for the last couple of years. I, I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was getting much traction. I think um, I was, you know, driving an hour to go and make my coffee for ten bucks an hour in the cafe, and then jumping back in the car and driving an hour back to my little apartment, etc. So I just got to a point where it was, and I was missing my family. Um, I just thought I'd come back for a little while and a little while turned into, you know, for good really. And, and, it, and I, I'd sort of forgotten how vibrant and dynamic the, the community was here. A lot, a lot of folks who are not in the arts really don't understand the tremendous sacrifice that is required by, by actors in pursuit of their dreams. Mm. You know, all of that, driving an hour just to make you $10 an hour <laughs> yeah. coffee. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's huge. And, you mm. know, it's sometimes you're sacrificing relationships. And um, Yeah, I think, it, I, think it, I think it does place a lot of pressure uh, on, on nearly every aspect of your life at times. I think, I think we're very lucky to find what we love doing and to discover that I don't think everyone gets to do that I don't think everyone discovers the thing that really makes them tick so I think if if you work in the arts and you and it really is a part of you and it really is an itch that you just have to scratch I think it's a really fortunate thing but yeah there is certainly those challenges um, that a lot of people in other industries don't have to deal with I mean even today you know like um, even certainly in the independent theatre realm, you know, you're, no one's making any money. It's you, no. you, you're doing it uh, purely for love, really. And you do find yourself when you're spending days and nights and a lot of time away from your family. I've got a young family now. I've got a couple of kids. That certainly changes your perspective a lot and shifts the trajectory of your thinking. It's yeah. not just... Yeah. Not like, about you anymore. It's not about you yeah. anymore and you can't just you know, go off and do whatever you want to do um, um, with your life. You've, you've got responsibilities at home and that does sort of affect your decisions more and more. But even the, the high-profile actors in Australia now would be lucky to get maybe one play at the STC and then a, a guest spot in a teleseries or something. And mm. That's their year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strange old time at the moment. Mm. Um, and it seems like a lot of guys and... and um, Actors and uh, and directors, etc., are coming back from overseas. It seems like Australia's sort of well. That's the exciting thing, which that is the really film industry mm. might receive a huge injection of, of, of resources and creatives. And there um, seems to be that. I, I've always wondered if you know these huge, big budget Hollywood films are really the boon for, particularly for actors, because they use stars, etc. Amazing for production crews because there's lots of work going. I don't think I don't know if it makes much of a difference to Joe to to job an actor to to all the the Joe Blow actors around, uh but it certainly, you know, seems to be creating huge amount of work for um if you work in production. Yeah. So, yeah, that's true. Bravo to them. Yeah. yeah. So, you arrive back in Australia. Mm-hmm. How do you start to uh 
get back into the industry? What 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 jobs are you doing? You're, you're finding an agent first. Aren't yeah, you? you're going back on the agent hunt, which is you know you need a little bit of um, perseverance with. Um, and it did feel like starting again, Pete. Yeah, it felt like oh okay. Um, I'd had a few years under my belt and had got to know the casting agents before I left, etc. Uh, so when I came home, when I came back, uh, that all had to start again. Uh, I had to sort of start reminding them who I was and and um, and and start auditioning again and all that sort of thing. Um, I think one thing that helped me because I and I was in my mid thirties by then as well. You know, I certainly wasn't a young pup. Um, and you're competing with actors who have got about right. ten years. That's right. They've stuck around yeah. and they've really established themselves. Yeah, I really felt that quite keenly a little bit. Um, but the thing that, that that sort of helped me was I, I I made a bit of a conscious decision after a while. I went, I'm actually just going to focus on trying to do really good plays, and and I'm going to try and do the best work I can, and just do really good plays. And and I thought I had this little thing where it wasn't an epiphany or anything. I thought I'm going to have I'm going to try and have like Judy Dench's career just without all the money and the awards and all the stuff that comes with it. There's no reason why I can't do all those amazing plays that I was always envious of, that those great actors could do. Yeah. So I did that and I thought, well, you know, maybe the career stuff will sort of take care of itself if I just focus on that job satisfaction. The jobs, yeah, yeah, and the work and without sounding, you know, too. Um, conceited or anything like that, yeah, um, too airy-fairy. I just sort of f- focused on trying to do really good texts and and I ended up doing a few really fun plays, Martin, you know, and I got to Martin McDonough and Jez Butterworth plays and um, and um, uh, Kenneth Lonergan plays and all these. And, and the more I did, the more actors I met, the more and the more you can showcase your wares and... And the industry stuff, the career stuff, if you want to, if you want to call it that, started to the wheel started to turn there, and that did start to take care of itself to an extent. Hmm. What makes a good actor? Do you think? Hmm. I think. I think an ability to empathise. I think you got to find where your heart and the heart of the person you're playing link up so you can get in touch with what that person loves and what you love and what they're scared of and what you're scared of and what they're trying to do with their lives and what you are and all their vulnerabilities become your vulnerabilities. Um, So I think the ability to dig into your empathy... Uh, on one level, on yeah. a certainly a, that's a deep sort of inside level, yeah. and then, and then I think that's the soul of the that's work. the soul of the work. Yeah, absolutely. And I think on stage in particular, technique comes into it. You know, there are mm. there are there are lots of attributes that really good actors share: timing, um, a quick mind. I think you know all the really good actors I know seem to be really intelligent, sharp kind of people. Um, and uh, can balance a lot of things at once in their head, um, um, which is a real amazing quality, I think, of really good actors. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if that That's answers your question. I, think, I, th- I, I actually I probably find all that quite difficult to talk about sometimes. Yeah. I think um, 
I it see. is hard to express. Yeah, I think instinct what has you a find huge... how you work. Yeah, I, yeah, I, and and I didn't go to drama school, right? So I I wasn't versed in um, a certain technique or anything like that. Um, I I find I find the text hugely <laughs> important, um, and I think it. And I think the way you approach your work and your part, the part you're playing or whatever changes from play to play. Yeah. The, 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 the process you go through uh, for one play might be very, very different to the, to the, to the way you build your, your, your character and work on another play. So um, I think it's a bit of a movable feast, but I think trusting yourself is a big one too. I think as you get older, you start to, you know, uh, you, you, you read a lot of good actors as they get older start saying things like, you know, I'm just trying to get out of my own way. And, and I think there's something to that. You, I think just trusting that you don't need to overthink certain things and you don't need to control certain things. You've just got to be gutsy enough, I suppose, to let things play out and, and not try and control that and not try and guess where it's going to play out. Just let it happen. Has fatherhood changed you as an actor or enhanced your... I'm kind of about to find that out. <laughs> right, so yeah. this, is, this is the first gig since, since no, becoming I a dad? Think, no, no, Jasper's four. So in terms of stage, uh, second or third, I think. Um, I think it's certainly changed me. I, I, think, um, I think it makes you very... I think it gets you in touch with your emotions a bit more, like you feel a bit of a nerve end quite often and that's not just from the three hours sleep you're averaging yeah. um, but I think you care so deeply about <laughs> your children that your ability to uh, access that care and love um, is possibly enhanced yeah um, I think that's certainly quite true how much that'll affect the actual work I'm not sure and it, it sort of changes your perspective a little bit um, I suppose the real test will come when you're actually playing a father. Yeah, yeah. I haven't and, done that. I haven't. Yeah, that's yeah. that's a good point, Pete. Yeah, I I haven't played that. But yeah, but fatherhood also for me, you know, brings up all sorts of <laughs> sort of emotional sensitivities that you weren't quite sure existed, but they were bubbling along underneath the surface: worry and anxiety yeah. and all yeah. those things and. You know, you, you vulnerability and fear. You know, you get worried about people, the people you love, and and um, and all of that's probably uh, going to impact on on your work at some stage, I suppose. Dep- again, depending on the play, depending on the play. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. If you're doing Noel Coward, probably not so much. Not. Possibly if you're doing Annie <laughs> Baker, maybe a lot. I don't know. No, I'm very envious. Um, About the two uh, children. Yes, yes, and, mm. and how that changes you as a human being. Mm. The closest I'm going to get, I think, is through my students. Yeah. And, you know, mm. I have tremendous um, appreciation and all that. Well, that's why I want to say love too, because mm. you, you, that relationship that you do have with some students. I have students, I've, when I first started teaching, that are still in my life, you know, and they're now Extraordinary. parents yeah. themselves. Yeah. And they're in their oh, 40s. Wow. Yeah, yeah. You know, but in a sense, they're like my, you know, Clayton's children, you know. I, yeah. I feel strongly for them. Mm. And, but to have your own offspring, um, yeah. is that a hundredfold, I think? Yes, yes, yeah. And, and it must be extraordinary for you as well because mm. of 
you're a drama teacher, mm. you know, and and you put them in a room and suddenly they're dealing with feelings and emotions and mm. all sorts of mm. things. You know, you're mm. not teaching them no, mathematics. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. They're yeah. getting in touch with their inner beings and, and how they collaborate with other people yeah. Yeah. and how they feel about themselves and other people and how they carry themselves in the world. All of that huge stuff yeah. that you have a part in working with, yeah. Yeah. which must... Well, it's pretty the same. extraordinary. It's the same as a rehearsal room, isn't it? Yeah. When you're working with other actors, yeah. often that you've never met before. That's right. And you're sharing the most intimate moments right. and relationships. <laughs> and see, I That's mean, right. you're a good lady wife. Yes. Um, not married, not married, but not, yeah, no, no oh, you're right. Well, you know, <laughs> you're for, de facto, de facto, De facto, <laughs> common law wife? No. Well, mm. you know what I meant. Your, your lovely partner, yeah. Ainsley, mm. who... I well, I'm probably thinking because I was married to her yeah, in the play that true. we did. You but were. you know, um, and coming to the end of of, a, of our marriage too, mm. in a relationship, and mm. that that sort mm. of rawness mm. of of emotion mm. which exists between people. Mm. So you share those experiences mm. in the rehearsal room yeah. and on stage eight times a week. Or, it's or incredibly whatever. intimate. Mm. But that forms this tremendous bond. Mm. I mean, I haven't seen Ains now for... Well, I was going to say, let's face it, then you piss off <laughs> yeah, and you yes. don't see each other for the next four years. But yeah. I know that You're bosom buddies for two months. It's it's the, one of the stranger parts of our business, I yeah. think. Where it's you, like you, I haven't seen you for several years, no, but we've right. just picked up from where we last left <laughs> That's off, right. You know. it's, that's the the most bizarre but beautiful thing about mm. being actors. Well, you have your closing night drinks, don't you? And you, you hug each other. You go, we are going to be friends for life. Yes. We're gonna, I love we're you so much. We're going to we're gonna do coffee every week. We're going we're gonna to go to plays together. I'll see you in 10 years if we do another show together. Yeah. <laughs> or I'll catch you in a foyer. Yeah, then there funny. are those two or three actors that you seem to end up, oh, we're in a play again. Yeah. We're in a play again. <laughs> I'm working with you again. <laughs> Shows like, well, you must be sick of me. Yeah, there's a bit of that. Yeah. Mm. How do you learn your lines? Um, I have an amazing... I made an amazing discovery about three years ago called Line Learner, the right. app. Oh. Technology is a marvellous thing. Yeah. So it's this brilliant app. Um, I really should be taking commission on the amount of people that I have sent to this app. I'd forgotten about this because you told me about this. Did I really? Yeah, I was. Yeah, about, yeah. It was around back then yeah, too. Yeah. Um, you know, I, it, you record all your lines into it and you can take out, you know, your scene partner's lines... Um, you can speed it up. You can put a gap in, and then it says your line after the gap, so you can see if you got it right. Um, it's basically uh, an app that means you are never without a scene partner. Mm. You chuck your earpods in, and on the bus, wherever you are, you know, mowing the lawn. I don't have a lawn, but if I was mowing it, um, I'd be doing my lines, and I just do that over and over and over and over. And as I'm getting older, I need to do it over and over <laughs> and just keep doing it yeah and then yeah back in, you know you know what it's like back in the day when you're in your 20s you, you don't you, you don't start learning anything until day three of rehearsal you know you go well we've got four weeks i'll start learning then but that's not really the case now but it, 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 that's the worry as you get older i mean mm, you know mm. judy dench who's now in her 80s doing Ooh. plays all the time i suppose yeah, it's a yeah. muscle that they yeah. develop i think it's a match fitness but, certainly you know, yeah i haven't done a play for four years now yeah. and it i puts the fear of god into oh you think that fine, i would have mate. to let sit down and learn a script yeah yeah you'd be fine um once you got back in the room yeah have yeah. a little faith pete well you're back in the room you're rehearsing mm. a play called ulster american yes what's it about well, uh, it is about um, it's about three theatre creatives. It's a, a, a Hollywood 
Oscar-winning film actor um, and a British theatre director and a Northern Irish playwright, um, two men and a woman, and they get together in um, in a lounge room in the theatre director's London lounge room uh, the night before rehearsals kick off on the play they're all collaborating on. And it's a play, it's written by the Nor- Northern Irish playwrights. So the Oscar-winning American actor thinks he's doing a play about a Catholic IRA-connected freedom fighter. But as the night goes on and the play, and particularly the term Fenian, is explained to him, he starts to realise that he might have, might have made a really big mistake. Um, and also uh, some things are said, some lines are crossed, and what starts out as this sort of jovial meeting between creatives uh, starts to descend into something a bit more chaotic. Do you play the director or the actor? I'll give you one guess. The Oscar winning actor. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> it was a given. The really given. obnoxious American Oscar winning actor, yes. Right. Jay. David Ireland? David Ireland, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Northern Irish playwright, born, born and raised in Belfast, now based in Glasgow. So a, a comedy? Yeah, it's yeah. hilarious. Black comedy? Very black. Right. Like as black as the as the night. Um, He's known for this kind of comedy. His last, his play before this was Cypress Avenue, which caused a big stir and played at the old Fitz a couple of years ago, which I saw and I loved. Um, He basically crosses a lot of lines. He's very provocative. Um, And and I think I've said this to a few people. I, I have never read a play where I was laughing so hard out loud, but also um, being utterly shocked by the places he was going to you know you'd be sitting there thinking he's not going to go there oh my god he just went there Mm. so he's very very funny it's a satire Mm. you know he is Mm. he is using piss taking (laughs) to you know peel back layers of hypocrisy and the more gruesome aspects of um of our of human nature um but uh he writes about huge things like cultural identity and the the, the cultural wars that are going on now and um, gender politics and um, and all those boundaries that exist in polite conversation around politics and gender and cultural identity, he essentially crosses all of those <laughs> in his place and just sort of wipes out those lines in the sand with his boot. <laughs> How do you keep your finger on the pulse of contemporary writing and in in the selection of plays that you uh, will present without Hasid? I just read a lot. Yeah. To be honest, I read a lot of reviews. So you just get online and I get online in New York Times. Yeah, and then yeah, if anything takes my eye, uh, and I read a review or an interview or anything really, or or someone comes to me and says, "Oh, you know, I read about this play. You should take a look at it." Um, And if if it looks remotely like it's up my street, I will. Um, yeah, contact the agents or buy the play or whatever, try and get my hands on it. And I read a f- bunch of stuff about Ulster and, you know, bought bought the Kindle version of that, read it in one sitting, which is always a good sign. I find if you're struggling to get through a play, it's probably not for you. Yeah. Um, and But I read this in one sitting and went, oh, yeah, that's... We, and I thought that's, that's a bonus if there's a role for you as well. Well, when you say bonus, it's an absolute necessity. But no, because <laughs> no, you have produced plays where oh, absolutely, where you yeah. Our 2019 season it. of three plays, I wasn't in any of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, that's very true. It is a bonus. Yeah, um, yeah, and it's 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 a lovely little 
um, extra tick if if there's something juicy I can sink my teeth into. I think that's lessening. I think that's that's probably where Outhouse started as well. When you're in your 20s, you're like, I'm going to do plays yeah. with something in it for me. But now I actually just enjoy putting great plays on um, and seeing them do well and, and giving audiences a chance to see plays and playwrights that they might not know uh, and introducing them to those playwrights. Um, so, yes, having me in the cast list isn't much of a necessity these days and with the kids as well it's just getting less and less doable really would you like to direct yeah i think so yeah yeah Yeah, i find myself um thinking in that direction and i'm not sure why i haven't taken the time to try and do it yeah yeah i've got my eye on a couple of plays but directing sort of scares me as well Mm. it's just so much responsibility at least Mm. but then i suppose when i'm acting and producing in the same show it's sort of doing double duty so that's a lot I think the best directors have been actors yeah yeah I think that's a fair point yeah, yeah they, they sort of know what makes us tick and what we require in, in many ways uh, and they're sensitive to that um, but yeah I, I hope to one of these days when I, when, I, when I get a bit of time yeah well Ulster American you've got Shane Anthony directing yeah yeah, yeah he's yeah. lovely and a season of two weeks, three weeks? What's well, two and a half? Two and a half, right? Might be three and a half, possibly. Yeah, you heard it here first. Yeah. Uh, we we have right. the option of doing a few extra shows, and it seems to be uh, selling well, which is gratifying. Um, but, yeah, we, we the first uh, preview is May the 13th, and we uh, are scheduled to play Tuesday to Saturday, no Sunday show, with a matinee on Saturdays until May 29th um, at the Reginald Theatre at the Seymour. Um, and bookings um, with the Seymour Centre? Yeah, yeah, Seymour Centre. You can go to Outhouse, um, uh, org. We've got Harriet Gordon-Anderson um, playing Ruth and Brian Megan playing Lee. So a couple Lovely of... Lovely cast, yeah. Excellent. They're just so much fun. We're just having a ball in the rehearsal room. Yeah. Not sure if you can have too much fun in the rehearsal room, but we're giving that a shot. <laughs> we're walking up to that line... Between indulgence and work. <laughs> well, Jess, lovely to catch up with Great you again. And um, you, this has Chris. been a really insightful conversation. Oh, I hope so. I hope it didn't just blather. No. No. It's great to hear your voice again. Oh, thanks, mate. Yeah, you too. <laughs> you should be doing voiceovers, my friend. Well, do you know anyone that can... Oh, look. Yeah. We'll, we'll hook it up, mate. All right. You've been listening to another episode <laughs> of Stages with my guest today, Jeremy Waters. Coming next week, we have an all-star cast featuring Jackie Weaver, Hugh Jackman and Russell Crowe. Just as soon as they can confirm... Don't you love the movie voice? The movie yeah. voice. In a world, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Jess. Thanks, mate. Bye. Outhouse Theatre stages David Ireland's Ulster American from May 13th to 29th at the Seymour Centre in Sydney. And bookings can be made at seymourcentre.com with further information available from outhousetheatre.org. Ulster American is directed by Shane Anthony and features Harriet Gordon-Anderson, Brian Megan, and my guest today, Jeremy Waters. You've been listening to Stages with Peter Eyers, produced and engineered by me. Please take some time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. And remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Wooshka, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcast listening. Thanks for joining us in this episode. I'll catch you next time.